You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. podcast of 2020 it is episode 62 it has been a long time since we've gotten together with the mariners general manager jerry depoto i am aaron goldsmith mariners broadcaster and uh, we are now joined these days by gary hill from the radio booth he'll be uh, producing this beauty for us we'll get into more on that in just a little bit jerry first of all as we uh, we can see each other we're doing this on zoom it's great to see you kind of face to face how are you holding up how are things going man this is this is our new face to face you're right like anybody else, it's been a it's been a challenge. I think the maybe the most the most traumatizing part of it to me thus far, beyond the, the obvious, is the public health scare. Is the fact that my wife cut my hair, <laughs> but uh, you know we're we're managing and and dealing with it and finding ways to if if even marginally improve and in, in creative ways with the Mariners. Well, uh, Jerry, are you? Um... I'm sure you're saddened. Uh, are you traumatized? Have you lost sleep that the maestro is gone? Every day since he left. And I, <laughs> I'm, 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 now my wheels are spinning trying to find the, what is the right moniker for Gary Hill? Is it, is it the new maestro? Is it the sub maestro? Is it the master maestro? Anything is possible, but uh, you know, Colin can sadly never be replaced, but I'm sure Gary will take the torch and somehow make this better. <laughs> I mean, it, to be fair, you know, it did take Colin a number of episodes to get the name Maestro. So there'll be a breaking in period, I'm sure, for Gary. But we we all know Gary very well. He's been on Mariners Airwaves uh, forever and is involved in so many roles and so many capacities with the Mariners. He produces our radio broadcast. He also does a ton of play-by-play for us. He has been producing and hosting the Mariners official baseball podcast for over like this is a real number for over 600 episodes right is that this is a real number right Gary that's right 636 I think (laughs) (laughs) 636.2 yeah that's right yeah, but for, you know, for those who missed it, uh, Colin uh, sadly left the Mariners. He uh, took a new day job, uh, but we're very happy for for Colin and what was uh, in many ways a, a step forward for him uh, personally, professionally. He's in the family business now, but we're thrilled to have Gary uh, along for the wheelhouse. It, it seemed like a natural fit, and I know, uh, Gary, you thought that there would never be an opportunity for you to have a permanent seat on the podcast and with Colin, like a Supreme court justice, but you never know, you know, sometimes life happens and, and here you are. And now you're stuck with me and Jerry for however many times a month we do this thing. Uh, and here I am. And I am totally distracted by your mustache. So it's, it's <laughs> tough for me to concentrate on the show so far as, I mean, look at that thing. It looks like for, you know, we're not on video. So people just uh, picture Derek Holland. It's a Derek Holland type mustache at this point. That's what, that's what I would call it. I don't know if you could have described that any better, Gary. And I, I will say this, that on the distraction front, you know, we, we all, and, and people really globally are now dealing with vehicles like zoom and, and Microsoft teams and virtual face to face because we're all doing our part and staying at home. But 
one of the nuances that I've been introduced to uh, in in this virtual meeting age is the backdrops, you know, the the (laughs) transitioning some scene from a movie or or a place that you've been or friends in a photo and and transposing it on the back of your your screen so that you are, I, I guess, it's almost like a green screen that forms in back of you. And, and the, you know, the, a few weeks back when I saw somebody roll it out for the first time, we were, we were on a, a, a Mariners baseball operations leadership call on Microsoft teams. And, and one of our, one of our people got on the call and appeared to be sitting in Seinfeld's living room. And I, <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't look away. It was phenomenal. And, you know, and and he went on a on a diatribe about uh, updating in his area, and I said, I don't know what words you just said, <laughs> other than because I can't not not look at the fact that you're sitting in Seinfeld's apartment. How is this happening? So it's, it's been awesome. Well, I mean, to, to get back to the matter of hand, you know, my mustache. It's it's been referred to many times already by passerbys as as art. I mean, it's really. <laughs> I think luscious and thick was something else. Um, yes, for sure. Full and with body. I mean, it's today's only day nine, I believe. Um, but I think this the Seinfeld backdrop. I mean, did, I mean, he had to have clearly spent money on this, right? I mean, these aren't like are these free downloads that you can get? Yeah, it- you can download them and. Oh, can you? Okay. Oh yeah, we've had all kinds floated out there. Movie scenes uh, where 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 <laughs> our people are in the middle of movie scenes, and it's gotten to the point now that during meetings someone will will turn their video capability off so their screen's gone dark and then when they come back on they're sitting in the <laughs> in the middle of a scene from rocky or the bad news bears or it, it's it's been fun to watch well you have a very expensive backdrop of the sandy koufax autograph frame jersey and of course stan the man autograph frame jersey which nice touch jerry very nice touch it, it was in your honor i it really it was it was dusty in a closet and I how dare you sir how dare you <laughs> no, i love stan he's awesome well hey man we there, there's no baseball being played but there are still many things to talk about and uh, it kind of seems fitting since we haven't chatted since arizona jerry uh, to take us back to that time i mean it's crazy how quickly things developed now gary and i were up in the booth uh, Marco was pitching a night game in Peoria the day that the NBA suspended its season, right? So we've got all day us as sports fans. And in this case, broadcasters to kind of think about this and nobody still knew the great reaches of COVID-19 at this point. And the NBA got shut down. We were expecting word the next day as to whether or not the NHL was suspend its season. The game that night that Marco was pitching in Peoria gets shortened after like eight innings because of rain. And then Gary and I are talking in commercial breaks and we're saying, man, there's like, there's no way that we're going to keep playing here. Right? Like what are we doing here watching fictitious baseball when real games are being completely deleted for the rest of a season And the next day, the game for the Mariners gets rained out. Word comes out that spring training has been completely shut down. And then there was kind of this back and forth as to where the players would go. But, man, it was amazing. In the span of, call it 12 hours or something, you're playing baseball with no talk of it being shut down to everybody go home. 
What were those moments that those 12 hours or so like for you as a general manager, getting the news feed as it was coming to you and the decisions that were being made? It was, it was incredible, really surreal how quickly it all happened. And I I remember we we were sitting next door to you guys upstairs in the box. It was a a rainy kind of cool night in Peoria against the Padres. And we heard the news about the NBA season. And, you know, at at that point, because this had become the, the COVID, the crisis had become you know, a real thing in Seattle, uh, well ahead of many of the rest of the places in the United States. And we were dialed in on it either through our ownership or our, our front office leadership, those were who were back in Washington. But as you know, we weren't really experiencing any of the, the I guess, the after effects or, or even the, the protective measures that most people were experiencing in Washington at that time and in other places around California, et cetera, until just a couple of days before uh, that night game with the Padres. And and when we got that news, that, that was our first thought was, man, it's just a matter of time before th- this hits uh, Major League Baseball as well. And, you know, it, we left the ballpark that night and the conversation the next morning was about, messaging the the likelihood that opening day was going to be uh displaced you know we weren't going to be able to play our opening day game in seattle but we were still talking about playing opening day whether that whether we do that in texas whether we did it down in arizona and and played a, a game or two in peoria before returning home that was the tenor of the conversation and then within 48 hours all of our players were on their way home and breaking camp and spring training. And, and for the next four or five days, we were running in small groups for just weight room activity activity only. And shortly after that, we just pulled the plug entirely. And, and all of that happened within the space of a five or six day stretch, which was amazing. It seems like, I mean, with situations that come up, there are, are, you can always compare it to other situations or look at different situations to get kind of a guide. But I mean, there has been nothing like this, obviously. How difficult has that made working through this entire situation? You know, you know, the situation, like, like it has been globally, Gary, it's a, the, the situation is so volatile and ever changing. No one really knows what to expect day to day. And, you know, the, the first time I remember, you know, meeting with our players on this issue, mm-hmm. I walked into the clubhouse. Uh, we had the rain day. Uh, Aaron referenced the rain day. And the following morning, we came in and we had our team meeting at, at 9 a.m. And and I talked to the players about the the suspension of spring training, that that we were shutting down Major League Spring Training, that we hoped that our players would would stick with us and we felt like we were safest if we stuck together and and uh, with so many young, healthy, otherwise healthy people, we felt like we were in the safest place that we could be. And you know, within 48 hours, we're telling them we need to work out in small groups. Please don't sit so close together on the couch. And and then by Tuesday, you know, it, in the span of about a four or five day stretch, by Tuesday we're urging them to please leave camp uh, and then ultimately just shut the door. So I felt like every day we were delivering the, the the players and staff a new message that was becoming more and more ominous. And we were just managing the situation that was at hand. We, we didn't really have 
control of what was developing. We were just listening to the advice of our medical experts, trying to make good decisions and be transparent with our players. And, you know, once it got to the point that we understood it was most dangerous if we did stay in one place in larger groups, that we just disbanded and decided it was best if everybody just returned to, to wherever they felt safest, whether that be home or, or somewhere nearby. Well, Jerry, now that we are in, I hate to say, but at least for the time being, obviously a bit of a new normal, and who knows exactly how much longer this will go for, what has been the method or methods for you and for Scott and for the rest of the coaching staff to kind of keep up with the guys, keep tabs on the guys, and try to stay within one another's lives because it can be obviously very easy with geography being what it is? You know, we, we broke into, like, we talked about small groups. The value of small groups is immeasurable because it, it just creates easier and, and clearer communication. So we broke into small groups, uh, and that that is Scott. It's our major league coaches. We've done it with all of our minor league personnel, our trainers and, and strength staffs, and each of our staff members, uh, each trainer, each strength coach, and each coach coach, uh, you know, baseball coach, is – is assigned a player. So each player has one, at least one representative in each of those spaces that is responsible for making sure they're in touch with that player. So they have somebody to, to help them with their prep, their body, their baseball skill development where it's possible. And then somebody who's also there to help them work through the nuance of training programs that may have to include just what fits in a six by by six foot space or may include nothing more than, than body weight exercise for those who are in dangerous, I guess, more volatile areas and or uh, areas where they don't have access to any type of equipment. So it's been a real challenge. And uh, I know many of us, myself included, have referenced among the group. It's probably been the most challenging thing that I've ever faced in my baseball life, uh, whether that be player you know, scout, executive, whatever. Um, it's also been the the most, I, I guess, energizing because we have to find creative ways to to develop programming, and that has that has forced us to into think tank sessions. You know, meetings like this where where we're we're on Zoom or we're on Microsoft Teams, and and just developing thought from scratch. And it's really given me a lot of uh, I've had a lot more good days than bad since this began because I've learned so much about our people and, and how creative they can be. Including book clubs, right? Yeah, that's one of the, the creative friends. I mean, I guess when it, when all else fails, go go back to the to the safest, the, the, I guess, place, which is, you know, Carson Vitale, uh, our new Major League Field Coordinator. And for those who don't know Carson, I, you should really take the time. Hopefully we can get drag him into it. To this space for a while because we, we don't have very many people who are any more engaging or, or entertaining or, or just fun to talk to than Carson. Um, he brought up the idea and it, we didn't know how it would fly and he we picked an easy book. He picked an easy book to start with that was very easy to discuss with at a, at a variety of different levels and was not a difficult read by any stretch and it was not about baseball specifically and and we thought those were important elements. And we, we offered it up to, to any of our, our staff members, be it you know managers, coaches, players, et cetera. 
And the original, the initial response was pretty strong. There were, there were probably north of 40 uh, who, who answered the call with the, you know, the, the first week. And we, we started a book called Chop Wood, Carry Water uh, about a, uh, a teenage boy who was training to be a samurai. And it was, it was, it was a really cool story, a very easy read. It was quick. Uh, and there were two weeks of, of book club meetings. And, you know, on Friday we would, we would hop on a, you know, a, an open Slack channel and a, and a zoom call and everybody would just, we, we had prepared questions that Carson and, and our director of major league ops, Jack Mossman came up with. And the players would just talk about, and the, and the coaches would just talk about, you know, what the, what this week's 50 pages, you know, what market left on them, what lessons they learned, what thoughts it provoked. And, you know, the, the first week was, was so good that word of mouth started really getting through the rest of the group. And by the time we were done with chop wood, carry water, the group had doubled and, uh, and, Carson was now a movie star in terms of putting together, you know, fun programming. And, you know, now we're on to legacy, uh, the story of the New Zealand all blacks, uh, rugby team and who have the, the, the greatest and most intentional culture in the, in the world of sports. And, you know, we're working through that and the interaction with the players from, from the major league group, you know, faces that, that our fans would recognize every day to younger minor league players who are joining for the first time to, to coaches and minor league staff members who are, we're all, I get, we're, we're all a little bit richer for being on the line. And, and in, in some ways now it's turned into an all week long affair because the Slack channel just, just keeps on, you know, Carson throws content on everybody reacts a player writes a, a paragraph on a, on, on where they are in the book. And, and it just, it, it really has, I, I guess, energized our group and, and, and enlightened them in ways that they can, they can grow emotionally and as leaders without playing a game or being in a clubhouse. Jerry, is it safe to assume that uh, you will be suggesting the life and times of Tom Seaver as the book when your turn comes up? I like to think I have more depth than that, Aaron. And, you know, although they might like to think that, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's not out of the question that I would, uh, I would bring such a book to the, to the table, but yeah, it's, there's Carson. I think Andy McKay uh, weighed in pretty heavily on this one that I'll say like the, the book we're reading now, legacy I've already read once. It's it, it for those who, who don't know about the culture of the, of the all blacks really really recommend reading it is it's phenomenal to understand what they do and how long they've been doing it as a as a unit and and the cohesion that that's created it's pretty awesome you know one of the one of the great questions surrounding baseball right now jerry has uh, nothing to do with the season itself but has everything to do with uh, something that you are uh, very much tuned into and uh, probably a little nerdy about and that is the major league drafts uh, exactly what it's going to look like, uh, what form it will take, when it will happen. Uh, is there anything official that's been put out that has been communicated to you as to what exactly the draft will be like this year? Uh, nothing official. We, we have been made aware that, that the draft will be no less than five rounds and, and on up to 10 rounds. The likelihood of it being more than 10 rounds is not very high. So, we are expecting a five or 10 round draft. We're hoping to know the answer to that question sometime in the next week or 10 days. 
we are anticipating that the draft is going to be held at its normal time. And, you know, between now and, and when the draft goes down in, in five weeks or so, uh, I'm going to summon my, my inner John Schneider and, and get myself prepared for the potential of a virtual draft because it's, you know, that, that right now, the status quo makes that a real possibility. But for us, frankly, in baseball, that wouldn't be a great departure from what we normally do. In terms of, I mean, you mentioned the, the football draft already. In terms of drafts, I think the Major League Baseball draft is so difficult when you think about all the players involved in terms of scouting, whether you're talking about high school players, small college, big programs, community colleges, you go down the list, there are a ton of players that you have to look at and scout during the course of the season. Given the circumstances, how much more difficult is it preparing for this draft? Uh, it, it, immeasurably difficult. And, but I will say that, that and we, we were asked the question, you know, by ownership from at the league level, if we thought it was even possible mm -hmm. to, to have a draft, having had so little time with this draft class, you know, there, there's a lot of young guys in this draft class that didn't even play with, you know, the, the cold weather high school states, uh, the Northeast, the Northwest, many of them didn't get in front of a scout. Um, we did have a, about what four or six weeks of of college baseball, uh, which was great. The good thing is that most of the work we do on this draft class happens in in advance of their platform season, so you know the, of their draft year. Mm. So most of the players, especially the players that I would you know among the top hundred prospects in this draft, you could even go deeper, maybe top two fifty or three hundred we are so deep in our information on those players that all they're doing in their platform year is jockeying for position. You know, we, we, you may get an occasional riser and, you know, or, or a cold weather high school player who really jumps, you know, for an example, that is Sam Carlson back in 2017. But for the most part, 90% of the, the players have already, I guess, bucketed themselves up in a general zone and now it's just a matter of, all right, does this guy go fifth or 15th? Does this guy go 15th or 30th? But they're generally in that zone. And the only thing that takes them out is, is I guess, underperformance or injury mm -hmm. because we know so much about the player. That still exists today. And I guess the only ominous part is that we don't know about a lot of the young high school players in this draft because they didn't get a chance to show themselves. But we feel like we're going to be able to pull off a draft that, that looks and feels uh, like any other draft and rewards us with the same kind of player talent. Jerry, we know, and, and we've talked about the draft annually on this platform and the advancements in technology and how your communication is delivered between scouts and people in the front office when it comes to evaluation. Has any of that changed or been enhanced or had to pivot at all given the current circumstances? Or is the platform that you guys have been going off of so computer-based that it's perfect? It sounds like you kind of referenced that perfect for a time like this. Yeah, the, part of the reason why we think we'll be able to do this maybe more seamlessly than some of the other major sports is, is our draft is so long, like Gary alluded to. And the the fans see the first round or the first round and the comp round. More recently, we see rounds one and two on, on MLB network. And then there are another 38 rounds and exhaustive <laughs> hours 
that are and and the and the draft has really you know just six or seven years ago it was 50 rounds I mean, when I was drafted, it was unlimited. You could just keep taking players. <laughs> sure. Is that uh, why you were drafted, Jerry? This is true. It's how I got. It. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I, I've, I've often joked about, you know, when, and as a baseball rat growing up and, and always looking, if you turn around, you know, go back and you look at your baseball cards from the, the 1970s and you know you, you flip over a tops baseball card and it would always have the, the draft information for the player on the back and and uh you know it, it it always made me smile or laugh like al cowens who i think finished second in the, I, I know finished second in the mvp al cowens had an unbelievable year former mariner gold glove winner i I think Al Cowens was drafted in the 75th round. <laughs> and man, you want to talk about Mr. Irrelevant rising up and becoming something, but they're, they're, all of that is to say there's so many rounds that happen without fans watching or even knowing that they're going on. And those rounds are all, are all happening, you know, virtually we we're we're on computers. We're entering our picks in, in the major league baseball computerized system we are doing it all based off of tech and you know while we do have open lines with our scouting people in the field we've always maintained a fairly small room of of decision making personnel what may change for us this year is that our war room may be the uh, a laptop where where everybody is being pumped in from different directions so we'll have to be creative in that regard yeah, the uh, the stock of whiteboard manufacturers will plummet this year as a result of your virtual meeting rooms come draft day. And uh, whoever makes custom magnets, I don't know what company that is, but you guys have like 3,000 magnets with names on it every year. I mean, probably laminators as well. That's probably a big part of the of the production value, I would think. It's. It, I, I will say for what I think is a, a an advanced technological team who, you know, we're in one of the most, really, I, one of the most connected cities in the world in Seattle. And, and uh, you know, we, we do, we put the, we put the draft player magnets up on the board the same way we did when I started <laughs> years ago. And, and uh, you know, I've often referenced, Hey, we have all this on a, on an Excel spreadsheet. Why don't we just, transpose the Excel, this Excel spreadsheet up on that movie screen. Oh, then what would we do with all the magnets? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, just saying, but we keep buying new magnets and, and updating <laughs> our whiteboards. It seems like that's a cost we might be able to minimize. Yeah. But you're, you're, you're thinking ahead, Jerry, in like 10 years, somebody big, somebody really big, even bigger than you is going to come up with this. And you're going to say, I was saying this back in 2018. I remember you're ahead of the curve. I, I will say that, that like if you if you've seen like the, the the footage on on Monday Night Football when John Madden or John Gruden get after Penn and start drawing on the screen or Chris Collinsworth, you know the the the, the old episodes of uh, of CSI Miami where they've got the big glass board where they're moving things to the left and to the right. That's the dream scenario that we are able to build uh, a draft room that is that is solely the draft room like you know one of our other challenges and this is a, a challenge that we're glad to take a back seat for you know our draft room is presently serving as a blood donation center uh, you know Trevor Gooby and our, our people with with ballpark ops and the Mariners care teams 
have for the last 10 days or so been been the 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 collection center for people who have been great in in their willingness to come in and donate blood which we know is going to be a critical need as as time moves along really in this time of crisis or any other and and uh what's more important our draft room or, or gathering blood <laughs> i think uh <laughs> we'll find somewhere else to work so we're gonna have to be creative uh in in that regard too is that we need big space for all those whiteboards and it's that 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 was our one big spot was the Ellis Pavilion. So we're going to have to adjust on the fly. Can we get off the rails for just a second with this like sci-fi notion of having a 24 seven, 365 draft room? Oh, like, please. We- I've been thinking about it for years. Okay. So obviously the biggest hurdle to this in every ballpark is just the space, right? Like n- there is not, probably a ballpark in America that they say, Oh yeah, we just have this extra like 3000 by 3000 square foot room just available year round with nothing going on in it ever. Okay. So like, let's start with that as the main premise, but let's pretend that that did exist at T-Mobile park. Okay. What would be the advantages of having that room around the clock be dedicated to the draft? And what would you do to it? So annually, and, and I, there's, I say this, we have a little bit of a cheater's view uh, because there is at least one high-powered sports uh, rep group that created this kind of space in their offices, and it's pretty awesome. Uh, and it, but it, it, it's, not, it's not glass screens and, and you know, touchstones where we, we just move things left and right. It is just sliding whiteboards. But at least one major league team, uh, East Coast-based team, already did this, built out uh, a space that was talent acquisition team. And, you know, the advantage to it is that so many of, of our days are spent communicating with scouts that are working globally. And we're gathering information from high school and college programs, international prospects. And what winds up happening is depending on who is leading that individual department, your director of you know, Frankie Thon leads our international group. Scott Hunter leads our amateur group. We've got a pro group who funnel through three different leaders in their area. Is that, you know, you have to be really cognizant of how each person is sorting the information. You know, uh, there's the, the, the information is being sorted into a, a variety of different buckets and then is being sent off to leaders in the, the baseball operation or the scouts in the field, sometimes in, in a variety of different formats. So when that's all happening, you might find out that there's four or six names that get lost in the weeds because when the information is coming in and, and going out, whoever it was on the receiving end didn't have the same interest or care for a player that you might. And, and then when we come back in, you know, we have, we're a draft model team. We, we built a, a model that, that our analytics team updates regularly that takes all of the information that we put in. So the, the, the measurables, what we know about the player, his physical attributes, his physical tools as graded out by our scouts, uh, the, the, the speed, the spin, all of the, the, the power, the exit velocities, uh, even right down to the way they're viewed in the public sector. You know, so how Baseball America or Collegiate Baseball or ESPN might see the player. And we try to take all that information and weight it all uh, as we, the, based on how important we find it. 
and then and then spit out a general order of about 800 players and and you know it, it would be really cool to have the ability while this is all happening to have your eye on it in real time so that the player and and, and as a for instance this was it's something that that we caught frankly what we think is in the nick of time you know cal raleigh is a great example of a player who was as information went in and went out cal kept dropping down the list but not because people were were placing him down the list each each time the the information would go in and out there's there was something else that would that would i guess technically knock him down a peg or two and then finally that you know the human element came in and said hey, I, I don't know what our information is telling us we need that guy and as you know we took him in the third round and we got him signed and we think he's going to be a big league regular and and we love the human so it, it worked out well but that's an example of why being in the same room with the information around you where our people can gather and just making it a, a year-round scouting hub and workspace is it, it, as you can tell, it's something that that we've talked quite a bit about. We'd love to do it. You know, if anybody thinks that my estimate of 3,000 square feet is egregious, pe- people need to know that like 1,500 square feet is just carbs. It's just the snack bar. I mean, people don't know the fuel <laughs> required for you guys. I mean, it's it's almost it's almost egregious, Jerry. It's yeah, it's it's a lot of carbs, man. Like you know this. There's a, actually, we were talking about that, you know, we had our first uh, draft planning meeting on Monday with our, our scouting leaders. And, and we talked about the reality that, that we might be doing this virtually. And I will out uh, our, our magnificent scouting director, Scott Hunter, um, on his propensity for uh, LaCroix, the, the, you know, the, <laughs> I guess fizzy water uh, with flavored water and and uh, Christmas peppermints. Uh, you know, like the, the, <laughs> what? like the little circular peppermints yes. that you, yeah. you get in, in a bowl at a at a local Applebee's at Christmas. <laughs> and uh, you know, Scott Scott will go through. I would say, and I, this is we're we're in the draft room for let's call it three weeks uh, prior to a draft stacking up our boards, making sure that, that all the information is lined up. And in that three-week period, I am fairly certain that Scott, by himself, drives the value of the stock of LaCroix <laughs> and whoever makes the little peppermints. The, 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 he drives their stock through the roof to, to the tune of one year we actually, I think it was his second year as the scouting director because it was so apparent to everybody that this was uh, – a tick of his uh, uh, during the draft meetings, we we've, we opted not to clean his space. So there there, there was there was a pyramid of Lacroix <laughs> cans that started. I, I'd, I'd say it had to be uh, ten by five. I mean, it was it was a big wall of Lacroix cans, and the the peppermint wrappers that, that had had consumed the, the tabletop around his his laptop to the point where you couldn't even really see it it was uh we have footage of this so it's not it, it, the the moment was saved it, it, but it, it's it's something that i will miss and we decided we were going to have to engage some type of of third-party delivery service to to drop off cases of these things at scott's house lest we not get the players we're hoping to get 
I mean, that is a the the peppermint and the Lacroix. That is a toxic blend. There's. It feels to me like you just may as well take a set of pliers and wrench your teeth out. <laughs> There's a, he he enjoys it, and and I think the the fact of the matter is that the twenty or thirty people that are in that room on a daily basis, there there's some kind of. Uh, loosening factor to the fact that we can all play around with him that, that he's that he's popping mints it's a it's it's his thing it's what he does well it's well documented on a variety of platforms that i not only do i have many a lacroix in my refrigerator i have uh, many uh, offshoot brands lacroix i'm always searching for the next greatest uh, gary on the other hand has a um well gary doesn't like many good things uh, and i would put i would put sparkling water a sparkling flavored water with that blend. What, what are you saying, Gary? Oh, that's correct. I don't like uh, slightly flavored water. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's good. I don't think it tastes good at all. Yeah. That's what, what did I tell you? What did I tell you? Jerry, if I was a Mariners fan listening to this podcast, the first wheelhouse of the year, given the state of baseball, I'd be saying to myself, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to. I'm going to download and listen and obviously give five stars to the wheelhouse podcast. And Jerry is going to tell me what's going to happen to baseball in 2020 because he's a major league general manager and he's got all the answers. Uh, unfortunately, there is not a single person in the world, including Rob Manfred, who knows what will happen to baseball this season. Will it be played? Will it not be played in what form with fans, without fans, there is nothing concrete. So let's start with that. So that being said, Jerry, a man in your position, what are you at least hoping to see happen realistically with baseball in 2020? It has, I mean, truly it's consumed conversation on our end for four or five weeks now. And, you know, I will say that when, when this crisis began and we started the stay at home uh, or, or practicing stay at home rules, we've, we were challenged with trying to come up with ways of keeping our players ready assuming that we would get a call and would be back to the, to the field in no time at all. Obviously that hasn't happened. We are still wildly optimistic more. So now I would say over the last week, we're, we're feeling a real uh, rush of optimism that we're going to be able to get back and play and that we're going to play in our own stadiums. You know, that's, that's, that's never been, uh, that's never been any more possible, you know, at least emotionally than it has been these last four five, six days. You know, there's still no, uh, I guess, I, nothing in place to, to give us a certainty that that will happen or when it will happen. Um, what I think about frequently is what will happen to minor league seasons because, frankly, a team in our situation who's building, the, it is critical to, that we develop our young players and to, to lose the time we've lost is manageable. To lose a season would be uh, would be devastating. Uh and I don't know what that would do to, to the progress of our players other than at, at best they would stagnate, which just get a year older, which is not ideal. Our hope is that at some point in the, in the very short term, in the weeks ahead, we get some understanding of, of what happens from here. We are prepared to move in and have a truncated version of spring training 2.0. We feel like that will take at least two, three weeks to get our players built up. And we've already talked about a, a, I guess, a more flexible roster that may include 
more pitchers uh, to allow us to 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 help our pitchers re-enter the 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 atmosphere without putting them in danger, and and that's going to be creative. I, I can talk about that by itself for an entire podcast. Some of the conversations we've had on pitchers, but don't really have an opening day. I don't know if it'll be in Seattle or in Peoria, but I've never been more confident that that's going to happen. Jerry, it's been uh, quite some time since we've done this. Stand With that being said, sorry, <laughs> <jumped> the gun. <laughs> are you, are you, uh, are you prepared, Jerry, for Stump JD? I, I, I think I am. I mean, you, you've had a long time to recover from just utter beatdown, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> now, as you know, just seeing your smiling face and that Ron Swanson like dash, <laughs> it's, it's it's outstanding. <clears throat> And it does feel good. It does feel good. Hey, um, as you know, sometimes Stump JD doesn't find the rails, right? And it's kind of an enigma. And there's sometimes, Jerry, I'll be honest, I don't even know the answer, okay? If we can just be perfectly clear about this. But this time... This just is very so you know, <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. You are doing a great job of reading between the lines then. Um so not only is today's Stump JD very topical, it's an anniversary, okay? Not only is it an anniversary and topical, there is a definite answer to this. So let's just lay some positive ground. Like, I feel like we're getting 2020 off to a strong Stump JD start with this question. Okay, and Gary, you agree with this? I agree. This is a good start. Okay. This is a great start. Yeah. All right, so as I mentioned earlier, we are recording this on Wednesday, April 29th, which happens to be the anniversary of Roger Clemens striking out 20 Mariners hitters at Fenway Park in 1986. 20 strikeouts, by the way, no walks. Phenomenal. That's a good ratio. I mean, I guess that's controlling the zone. It's, it's filthy. It's incredible. So, Jerry, can you tell me the other four pitchers in major league history to strike out 20 batters in a single game. Four pitchers in major league history to strike out 20 batters. Uh, so five Randy, total. So five total, the four, the four others. Uh, Randy Johnson. Correct. Uh, for a long time, the, the, the answer to the question was Tom Cheney. Tell me the year. 19, I want to say 1959. Oh, you're off by only three years. 1962. How many innings? How many innings, Jerry? Uh, I don't know. 16 innings. (laughs) 16 innings. He punched 21 tickets, man. Incredible. That seems excessive. That uh, (laughs) seems excessive. Um, I am going to say was... Is the most recent member of that club Max Scherzer? Bingo. And Justin Verlander. Oh no, no, no. No, Jerry. No. I'll give you a hint. I, Gary, correct me if I'm wrong on this. Jerry, your skipper uh-huh. was in the dugout for this ah, game. Carrie Wood. Yes. Ah, there it is. It was. Carrie Wood. 
Yeah, it was a day off for Scotty. It was his yeah. chance for fame. Instead, he got the, the he got the walk of shame being the catcher while Mark McGuire's rocket was flying over the left field fence. That was his. <laughs> the Kerry Wood game. I mean, I know like it gets discussed like all the time because it's incredible. But if you actually look at the line, I mean, it's nine innings, one hit, no runs, twenty strikeouts. It's it's out of this world. It's incredible. Kerry Wood before his first injury, you know, the Kerry Wood was had as good a physical stuff as anyone you'd ever see. I mean, it was the his fastball was it flew out of his hand. His breaking ball was it's, it was like as close to Nolan Ryan type of stuff. Uh, and and I I don't want to say it was I don't I didn't see Nolan when Nolan was twenty one years old, but. You know, Kerry Wood, when he was that young, was something to watch. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, worth noting, the Rocket did it twice. And he did it like 10, 10 years, years after he did it the first time. A decade later. I mean, like, some guys, most guys don't even pitch a decade. He bookended a decade with 20 strikeouts. Insane, right? There's, I, I, it's, it's, to me, Roger Clemens' career, uh, it's by itself is the, the, you know, I remember when I, when I got to the big leagues and by that time, Roger had won a couple of Cy Young awards and, and we were in Boston to play the Red Sox. And he was one of the guys that I, I sat in the dugout and watched the first handful of innings just to see what it looked like up close. And, and uh, you know, by far the most impressive of the, of the big time pitchers at that time in, in terms of his power plus his precision, you know, the, by far the best stuff I ever saw doing that was Randy Johnson. But the, the the guy with the ability to take awesome stuff and locate it, there was really nobody better than Roger Clemens for, for the longest time. Well, this is why we've got Gary here. Gary, Gary went into the Mariners radio archives, and this is Roger just, just recently, just a couple of years ago. This is an incredible story, talking about the hours leading up to first pitch on this day in 1986 at Fenway Park. Well, it was a it was a crazy beginning because um, I've, I've told the story a few times, so the listeners might have heard it. But I almost missed that start. I got stuck on Storo Drive there in Boston. Uh, they were having a concert uh, somewhere, but I got I was there. I was headed to the park uh, my normal time to get there a good hour and fifteen twenty minutes before I start, and um, we weren't moving in the traffic. I ended up taking my I had cowboy boots on and jeans. I took them off to put my running stuff on. My wife was going to drive the vehicle. And next thing you know, it looked like we were broke down. A motorcycle cop came up on us. And when he saw my face, he's like, oh, my gosh, you're, yeah, and, and you're on the mound. And I go, yeah, and I need some. So he split the sea force. I got there. I, they were going to try and scratch the start. I talked him into letting me go. Warmed up. Didn't throw a strike at all warming up. My pitching coach, i pretty certain he made comments that he thought it was going to be the shortest outing in my career. And I went out there and. The rest is history, as they say. I struck out 20. Um, Bill Fisher, my pitching coach, is, uh, you know, he still holds the record not walking anybody. And so he was real proud in that game that I didn't walk anybody. But it was definitely a special night. Uh, I showed my teammates I was healthy. Great stepping stone for the wonderful season we had that year in 86. And uh, I didn't even know there was a strikeout record until I was made aware of it late in the game. I mean, it split the C for him. I love the, I love the idea of the cop going, hey, you're – and you're – well, let's go. <laughs> I mean, every why is it that every epic pitching performance 
starts with, well, my, when I warmed up, man, I couldn't throw a strike. I mean, they all begin like that. If I was a big league pitcher and I couldn't throw a strike in the bullpen before the game, I'd be feeling on top of the world. There's do it on purpose. Don't throw strikes on purpose. (laughs) I I do remember I I played with a a guy in the, in the early nineties in Cleveland who made his major league debut. His name was Albie Lopez and Albie wound up pitching for quite a number of years in the big leagues. And, you know, this was with the Indians. We were in Oakland to play the A's and our pitching coach and our bullpen coach were standing in back of Albie while he threw his final warm-up pitches. And by that time, most of the guys from the bullpen had already wandered down there and he throws his last pitch, turns around and walks, walks toward the dugout to, to, to get ready to pitch the game. And the, the pitching coach looks at the bullpen coach and shakes his head and the, the, the bullpen coach comes back down and sits, sits in the dugout. And as soon as Albie made it to the dugout, he hit, he hit our, our long guy and, and he said, let's get going. <laughs> <laughs> and they just started throwing and, and, you know, and seven innings later, Albie Lopez probably had what was then the best start of his, of his career. It was, it was phenomenal. And, and, and against the team that had Ricky Henderson and Mark McGuire, I mean, and he just rolled through them and, and the bullpen was horrendous <laughs> it, was a, it was about as bad as it could be it's a, it's weird how it works i think you know nolan ryan talked about it so often when he had the great no hitters or big strikeout games where it just didn't click for him in the bullpen that day and there's something about going into the game and having that extra focus that you know you need because your your stuff isn't as precise as you want it to be and i know many people have probably heard broadcasters perhaps like the legendary Aaron Goldsmith, but certainly like Vince Scully, Mel Allen, you know, there are pitchers like a Roger Clemens or a Nolan Ryan, et cetera, who if you don't get them in the first inning or two, you just don't get them. And, you know, and, and that is that day. It's the day where they are focused on trying to lock in their precision. And once they get there, they, they become unhittable. I would be thrilled if I couldn't throw a strike. I would be, I would be telling everybody, get rid of this. Your ability to do that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We've got a listener question for you, Jerry. Uh, This comes in from Eric with a K, which is important to note. Eric with a K. Hey, uh, Jerry, what changes, if anything, about the team's draft strategy as the rebuild progresses? Is it always best player available, period? End of story. Or do you focus on positions lacking organizational depth, take more risk for more upside now that the minor league levels within the system have been uh, replenished and there's much more talent spread throughout? Um, I know there's a lot there to digest, but what are your thoughts? Well, I, th- I do think that there's I'll, – I'll move in reverse and just try to touch all those different thoughts. Uh, I do think there's a greater likelihood for us to, to take risk that we might not have been quite as willing to take, say, in 2016 or 17. Inside the top 100 picks, which for us this year will encompass four of our picks, uh, usually it's about three, they're inside the top 100 picks. We are always hard and fast, take the most talented player with the highest ceiling. And while managing the uh, uh, some degree of, of the, the risk outcomes, you know, the, the likelihood of us taking three consecutive high school right-hand starters to, to start a draft is it's, it's – probably not going to work out for you. So, you know, we, we do try to balance out risk and reward, but if, and if being honest there, because we have built up the minor league system and feeling like it, we're in a pretty strong position now, especially the depth that we've created with our pitchers, 
given our druthers, we would prefer uh, middle of the field athletic offensive players uh, near the top of the draft, both because they're exciting and because they're the, the hardest commodity to, to find, to acquire. Um, that being said, we feel like there is tremendous depth, particularly among the, the pitchers in this group, both at the high school and college levels. And, you know, where we pick in this draft, if there's a middle of the field uh, difference maker that we feel is, is there, especially at pick six, then that's the way we'll go. If not, then this, this is one of the most talent-rich, deep drafts in recent memory, uh, especially on the pitching side. I do think this question is worth noting. It comes in from Derek, who looks like is wearing an Aqua Sox hat in his Twitter picture, which I think is noteworthy. Uh, we you need your... David Hesling pretending to be Derek. <laughs> <laughs> That's also possible. Yeah, uh, Hesling does have a great baseball reference photo, if I remember correctly. Uh, Derek wants to know, Jerry, uh, give me your your bread recipe. Everybody's baking right now. Have we, have we been baking up any sourdough or any challah? What's going on at... at uh, at the uh, DePoto household in terms of the, uh, the baking department this time of year? I have not done any baking. Part of that is because I don't know if this is an experience that you are having. We can't get our hands on any yeast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, most of, most of the baking that we're doing has been uh, sweets. And, you know, Tammy today was making like a blueberry raspberry tart, which uh, I'm excited to try. My, my most recent creation was a uh, Sunday. Sunday I did a, uh, I did beef short rib stroganoff, which was, I, I have to say, I thought it was, it was pretty good. Um, I, we have experimented with so many different things, uh, that for the longest time we tried to do like something new every day that we hadn't tried. And, you know, I've got footage I'll share with you if you're interested and, and maybe, since we're now doing this, this kind of zoomy thing, we, we can, we might be able to show pictures to, to those who are interested, but no, no, I will s- other good things. I, I will say as odd as it sounds, like if somebody asked like Aaron, your go-to dish right now, it, my answer might be beef stroganoff. There's like beef stroganoff is one of the greatest meals of all time. And I feel like, I feel like many people probably like, I don't even know the last time I had beef stroganoff. I wouldn't call it a great summertime meal. Um, <laughs> well, you got to get it in. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm, I think short rib beef stroganoff does sound divine. So nicely done on that, Jerry. And a, a time commitment with the short ribs. It's a, you're not, I mean, this was every bit of four hours tip to tip and the, like first to prep and, and then letting it cook out and developing the, the sauce. Cause that, you you can't really rush the the good stroganoff sauce. If you really want it to stick to you, <laughs> you I mean, you got to give it the time to, to develop the flavor. And it was pretty, it was a lot of fun. And uh, something new that I tried, hadn't really considered it was short ribs, but I had, you know, when we first got home and, and understood that we would be at home for quite a while, uh, I ordered quite a lot of meat and, and uh, had it delivered. So we had one of one of the things that we had in the in the fridge was a, an ample supply of short rib that could choke a horse. To, and we we decided we would be creative with how to use it. And that's that's what we came up with. Hey man, it's a pro move. Nicely done. Well, as we uh, sign off here, Jerry, from our first wheelhouse of the year, uh, let's take a, mi- a minute or two and kind of talk about the pivot the podcast is going to take before baseball resumes 
whenever hopefully that is sometime very soon. Gary and I were, were kind of talking this over and we looped you into it. And we're, we're all in agreement that we would like to use the wheelhouse as a platform to introduce Mariners fans to some people within your department, within the Mariners, maybe coaching staff that we don't get a chance to have these kinds of long form conversations with. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, Jerry, uh, like who should we, who should we talk to, man? Like who's, who's first, second, and third on the list of guys that we need to be having on the wheelhouse and, and get to know before our baseball kicks up again. Uh, there's so many I'd love to get to know. Even just names that we've dropped on this episode. Guys like Carson Vitale, David Hessling, the Jesse Smith, who leads our analytics department and, and, and built out the draft model we talked about. Um, I could I could throw a number of names out there. Andy McKay uh, for some of his nuance. There's We, we have a, a wonderful group of young pitching coaches led by Max Wiener who I think would be an awesome uh, guest on, on this, uh, this type of platform. And they're, they're entertaining at very least. And, and for me, the information that they provide, whether you are a little leaguer, a high school player, you know, or even just interested in how we develop players or some of the, the information we use to reference. Awesome. And they, and they can entertain along the way and they can all cook a little bit too. I'll say that. I mean, what's the, uh, Vitaly's got his, I mean, he's threading a cooking show. Is that right? There's a, so we have talked about it behind the scenes with some type of cooking challenge show, uh, where, where we just do, uh, we do GoPros or a camera in a kitchen and, you know, it could be Carson, it could be Aaron, it could be Jerry, it could be celebrity chefs from around Seattle that, you know, we just, we pump into the kitchen and, and have, you know, so let's call it professional chefs, not to sell you short, but professional chefs that are teaching us how to cook one of their dishes it's uh, and then watching inevitably as we screw it up and and <laughs> start over again but it's a uh, thought that would be fun way to pass the time even if it's not you know, wildly consumable for the viewer <laughs> <laughs> you know but uh, you know gary in all seriousness this is uh, something that i, I think is going to be a great use for this platform i mean there's only so much that Jerry and the two of us can talk about right now. I think we've basically covered it in this episode. So to be able to use this time on a weekly basis to, for us to get somebody better and for a, a Mariners fan out there to hear somebody like um, David Hesley speak for the first time about his kind of crazy path to get to the front office. I'm really excited about this. I think this is going to be really good use of the wheelhouse. Yeah, me too. Because some of these conversations we have are like five minutes long, you know, seven minutes long, something like that. I love the fact that we can go in depth and really get a chance to get to know some of these people. And as Jerry alluded to very interesting people as well, this is going to be fun. I'm excited for it. Well, Jerry, you gave us a good running head start on this. We're going to, we'll have to get some invitations going and see yes. uh, who, who bites first. I mean, I know people are very busy right now. Obviously we got to, we got to fill, we got to, we got to fit in with other people's zoom calls and Microsoft team calls, but as long as we can squeeze in, hopefully somebody will accept the invitation. But Jerry as always, man, it's seeing you. I'm glad your spirits are high. Uh, I'm surprised by that at all. It sounds like things are still uh, moving like clockwork within the uh, baseball ops front office. And we look forward to talking again sometime very soon. As do I, my friend. Stay safe and, and keep growing that thing. Keep growing it. It's oh, you, you, you are going to be so intimidated a week from now. You're going to be shaking <laughs> your boots. See you later.